Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable Podcast, the only show that dares to be both on topic and on location. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT luminaries to discuss a single concept. In this episode, we're talking containers, or the lack thereof in the enterprise. But before we get begin, let's quickly meet who's on the panel today. I'm your host, Stephen Foskett. You can find me on Twitter at sfoskett, and you'll find my enterprise IT content at gestaltit.com. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Williams. I'm a multi-cloud consultant at Worldwide Technology. You can find me on Twitter at mistwire.com. Hi, I'm Cormac Hogan. I'm a director and chief technologist at VMware, focusing predominantly on storage. I'm on Twitter at Cormac J. Hogan, and I blog extensively on cormachogan.com. Hi, I'm Drew Conry-Murray. I write and podcast at packetpushers.net. You can find me on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. And I'm John Owings. I am a solution architect at Pure Storage focused on Kubernetes and how to connect storage to it. And you can find me on Twitter at John underscore two VCPs. And my blog is blog.2vcps.io. Pretty easy, hopefully. Thanks, guys. Um, so here's the premise. Um, you know, the, the orchestration is one of those things that is almost synonymous with containers nowadays. And you know, the thought is that maybe the reason that enterprises haven't adopted containers so quickly is because they have lacked orchestration. They basically are hungry for a way to orchestrate containers in a way that fits in with their overall you know, environment. And I think that that seems to be, in a way, the, the message of VMware. So Cormac, why don't you kick us off a little bit? Like what's, what's VMware's position on, on containers and what's your thoughts on why enterprises have or haven't adopted containers? From, I guess, a VMware perspective, or not even a VMware perspective, you look, a lot of customers do think that Kubernetes is quite hard. In fact, if you look at uh, Kelsey Hightower's blog, he does go through Kubernetes the hard way. And there's a whole bunch of things that you have to go through to step up a Kubernetes cluster. So things like just getting the tools ready, um, you know, getting your certificates in place, things like setting up the etcd, setting up the control plane VMs, worker VMs. And there's this impression that there's a whole amount of work to be done just to get Kubernetes stood up. And that may have been the case a couple of years ago, but things are getting a lot easier. Um, a lot of, I guess, people who are familiar with Kubernetes today will be using tools like kubeadm and so on, but they're not even doing all of the orchestration for you. They still leave things like load balancers and ingresses and even the persistent storage that needs to be set up as well. So there is a project underway now to make that even easier. It's a project called Cluster API. And so this is basically using Kubernetes to stand up Kubernetes. And so as part of the Tanzu Kubernetes grid, we can talk about Tanzu later, but that's a, this is now essentially VMware's engineered version of Kubernetes. We're using Cluster API extensively to make it a lot easier to stand up your first Kubernetes cluster and just get, get started, make it a lot easier to get started. Does that answer your question? So, you know, do you find this, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the message that I got from, uh, you know, VMworld, for example, was that, uh, you know, VMware's goal was to make, you know, containers easy for the enterprise. Um, you know, is that going to work? Is that really what enterprises are hungry for? I don't know, Chris, do you want to jump in on that one? 
Yeah, it's it's definitely um, so. So the the history of of contain. I mean, I think I think we're all aware of the the history of containers and Kubernetes and orchestration. Um, wh what I've been seeing uh, from my customer base, which is SMB all the way to you know Fortune 100, is it, it all it all depends upon the use case. Um, when people started using containers, they started with very simple apps. You know, everything was baked into one layer. Um, and then as, as things started, as, as, as people's maturation curve and utilization started to, to get better and go bigger, again, depending upon how many developers you had and how big your organization was, that, that need for orchestration kind of came as a, I'm not going to say came as an afterthought. They understood that, that they needed to get into it, but I don't think that they fully understood how difficult it was going to be. Um, and, and that learning curve, I mean, we've all talked about how the, the Kubernetes learning curve is, is steep. Um, and I, I think we're, I think we're getting to the point now where we realize how steep it is. I definitely think that orchestration is not the hurdle right now. There, there are probably 20 different tools that you could use to get Kubernetes. And some of them, you know, VMware's the Tanzu Kubernetes grid, great tool, very, you know, very easy to use. Uh, but there are others out there too that are that are super easy and and I think right now the gap is in skills right is is actually learning it because there's a there's a I don't know select few that are really good at it and um, getting the right information because you you could if you run into an error and you Google it you might find something from 2014 that should be not pertinent to what's going on at all um, and so getting help for the latest error message from 2020 is is hard. I think another issue is um, I definitely agree. Kubernetes, uh, the skill sets aren't there. People are still ramping up uh, on top of having to learn cloud and everything else. Uh, and when you get into Kubernetes, then you find out, well, maybe I also need a service mesh, so I've got to learn Istio Envoy, whatever else is uh, coming along with that. We have to step back and ask a more essential question: Is are, are folks not getting it in containers because? They, they're not sure whether microservices is the right approach for their applications. And for many of the people I work with, just to build on that is they're not, they don't, the microservices isn't a part they're dealing with, right? They're infrastructure people. Um, you know what I mean? They, they are building cloud or they're building on-prem uh, VMware, vSphere, those types of things. And so the, the service mesh or like tying the applications together, like they're, they're getting told that's what's happening by someone else, by developers, by DevOps, somebody else. And they're trying to deliver this and that's where they're kind of asking for help. And I think that's a big part of it, John. I think there's a gap between what's happening at the Kubernetes layer and what's happening at the underlying infrastructure layer. And I think if we could bridge that gap by actually highlighting at the infrastructure layer what's happening at a Kubernetes cluster level, but maybe also vice versa, being able to bubble up what's happening at an infrastructure layer into Kubernetes, that would really help, I think, address that gap as well. One thing that I find that's interesting is that I'm, I'm seeing basically, we, we talk about like DevOps, but I'm, I'm seeing the two camps of folks. You know, we, we have the traditional, you know, VMware administrators and, and the guys that have been, you know, building data centers for decades. And then we have the developers and the developers are, are pushing, I, I, the way that I see it is that they're pushing this need. They're, they're pushing the, the scalability, the, the flexibility, um, all, all of the things that they need to, to get out of the environment. And 
from, from what I'm seeing, they're kind of dragging the administrators along. The administrators are having to learn about storage classes. They're having to learn about PVCs. They're having to learn about all of these things that, that, that the, the developers understand inherently, but then they, but then the, Conversely, the developers don't understand the necessary the the infrastructure needs, like your I/O and your throughput and stuff like that. And and there's a there's a, a, sh a communication gap in between the two, where you know we, we all talk about the the DevOps unicorn. Uh, we're we're st we're starting to see that you know pe people are starting to butt heads on that on that aspect. One of the things that comes to mind during this whole conversation is, I guess we're kind of taking it for granted that enterprises haven't adopted or are slow to adopt or somehow not adopting containers. Is that even true? I mean, are enterprises not using containers or is it just that IT infrastructure isn't aware of it or that maybe we're just totally off base? Um, <laughs> what's the reality? So, so um, I, I, it, again, it depends on, on your, your environment and your use case. If you're talking about like uh, a, um, and an insurance company, a, a very old insurance company. Actually, that's a really bad example because they're on the, some of the most cutting edge stuff. Uh, you know, uh, companies that are that are loath to move, they're they're kind of dipping their toes into it. But financials and insurance companies and people like that, they have bleeding edge departments that are that are fully baked into getting, you know, the Kubernetes and containers and you know and you know, dipping their toes in the serverless and, and, and really, you know, getting to the bleeding edge of that. Um, if, if you're starting a company brand new today, absolutely, you're getting into containers. You, you, want, you want the flexibility to be able to move into whatever cloud you want to get into. You don't want to get the vendor lock-in of, of, a, of a function as a service from one of the public clouds. So you, you flip over to Kubernetes and you get your containers up and running and then you can port it wherever you want to go. So I, I see that people are absolutely getting into it um, because most companies are turning into application and software warehouses now that happen to sell whatever product they're selling. So Chris, I'm wondering if you're seeing um, that uptake happening more toward the cloud, the public cloud, or people using um, containers for deploying in a private cloud or on-premises? Uh, well, it depends upon how old the company is. If it's, if it's an older company, then they're starting on-premises. <laughs> And they're and they're you know you know st starting and getting their feet wet you know first on you know Docker desktop and then oh that looks cool let's let's throw that into into you know Tanzu and start and start getting it locally and then they'll start work, you know working through multi cloud migrations um, again depends upon you know how how baked in and how much infrastructure they already have and I'll chime in a little bit on that too is at least from what I've seen kind of talking to customers across the country on you know, if they say containers, that's when I, I get called in, right? So there's kind of two paths. There's the ones that are doing it on-prem because their data has to stay within some defined walls for some reason, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then there's the ones that are like, we can do whatever we want. And those are where we're having to decide, you know, you know, where's the data go? Do we put it on-prem? Do we put it in the cloud? Do we, can we move it back and forth? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a cooler conversation right? Because it's got a lot of moving parts. It's, it's a fun conversation for me, but it really depends for, at least from my perspective, it's not like the age of the company, like you were saying, Chris, but more, uh, where's your data have to be for mm. whatever reason, right? Like, you know, some of them, some people have all kinds of reasons for it, but that's, that is what it is. And 
yeah, the point I was going to make as well with uh, Chris's uh, comments were the application as well. In a lot of cases, if it's an existing application, then you're going to have to refactor that completely. Um, you know, things like a lot of these 12 factor apps, they've built in replication that, you know, they don't need the infrastructure to provide the availability. The av availability is placed in the app. But that's not to say that there are customers who also want to bring traditional applications into Kubernetes as well. And I think that's where it becomes in interesting from an infrastructure perspective, because are we now at the infrastructure layer responsible for doing some of those things that the typical cloud native applications do? So protecting it, replicating it, and, and so on and so forth. And the 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 lift there to, to piggyback on Cormac is is the it, that's almost on an application by application basis. It's it's it really gets down into the weeds of of when you know, like if you're dealing with a customer that's got you know twenty thousand apps, and and you have to like figure out you know wh which one is which one is is more portable, which one is less portable, which one is you know still tied to a mainframe. I mean, there's 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 so many implications that you that you have to to weed through. Um, it's 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 fascinating and it's interesting, but um, you know, re refactoring to put into a container just for the sake of having a container is is um, uh, something you need to consider. I'm not saying it's a good idea or a bad idea. It's something you need to consider. <laughs> a, a small counterpoint I'd like to throw throw out there, um, if I can, Stephen, is orchestration not as much as in the enterprise. You still have these data protection teams where they don't care that you've moved the app into a container and it's not supposed to be backed up anymore, right? What's the backup policy, right? And, and what, you know, well, but it, but it replicates itself across different clouds, but what's the backup policy, right? They're, they're gonna continue because on the paper, on their policy, it says, we have to back this up and retain it for 60 days and then move it, you know, the, so th that is a, another reason I think is, is there's not a, a whole bunch of really good solutions for that yet for those traditional apps like trying to and also trying to convince the backup team that some of these refactored apps don't need to be you know backed up to tape every every night and it's not just backing up the data john right i mean when you're dealing with kubernetes it's all declarative so all of these applications have some manifest files associated with them and unless you've got those manifest files with the data it becomes very difficult to put them back together afterwards so there's more things to think about from you know backup recovery perspective when it comes to Kubernetes than maybe you would have to consider in traditional applications running on you know traditional infrastructure. And if you um, if you have a security team that insists on having a, a an IP address statically assigned to every single application, and you have containers that you know grab from a pool and and they have and you have a six week waiting period to uh, to get a new a hole parked in the poked in the firewall. Um, not that that has ever happened to any of us. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're speaking from experience there. Um, just last week. Just last week. Yeah. I, I wonder if um, you know maybe you know to the premise of you know orchestration is what's lacking. Maybe it's not orchestration. Maybe it's applications. Maybe it's demand. I mean, I, I really feel like. Um, there's a, there's a natural tendency for some applications to be containerized and others not to be, and that um, orchestration is a prerequisite for adopting those applications. But it's not necessarily the hurdle. It's not necessarily the the the, the barred door. I think that it may be just a case of enterprises are, um, you know, they need that, but then they're going to be 
bringing in containerized applications as it makes sense. Is that off base? I wouldn't, I would agree with you. And I think it's even more complicated than that insofar as we're now seeing applications that are a combination of containers and virtual machines. And so now you're stuck with, well, orchestration comes back into it again, but can you orchestrate virtual machines as well as orchestrate containers for this application? And so that's one of the things we're looking at as well. Door um, with vSphere with Kubernetes that came out with vSphere 7.0 is a way of orchestrating applications or workloads and not just focusing either on containers or on virtual machines, but doing a combination of the two if necessary. Well, not to uh, throw it in there, but there's another thing that's important as well, and that's the storage. Um, you know, I mean, you know, no, no enterprise application is uh, is a container. Enterprise applications are, you know, containers plus storage, really. Um, unless maybe that's my biases showing. Well, I mean, I would agree with that. I think I, I did pretty good without talking about you know storage for almost 15 minutes. So. That was, that's like a record for me, but yeah, definitely. I mean, I see a lot of customers cause they don't understand how to automate the storage. They are looking at it. And it's not like they've discounted containers because I don't know how to do uh, persistent storage, uh, but they're at least coming and asking the question. Right. And so I think that's what's keeping me busy, like from 7am to 7pm because you know, I cover the East Coast to the West Coast, so there's no there's no uh, stopping in the day for me. But it is it is definitely it is definitely something where people are trying to figure that out. They're asking the question, and you know, obviously we provide a way. That's what I talk about all day long. But you know, it's something that a lot of customers enterprises are dealing with right now. It, it's interesting because um, I'm still having conversations to this day where, where people think that containers is still just stateless information and that you still need to have a, a stateful persistent backend that is not container related at all. And, and, you know, I have to, you know, then go through the talk about PVs and PVCs and storage classes and explain how, how all of that, you know, breaks down and, and how you really can containerize your whole stack now. Um, but there, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt still still baked into the layers um, that that you kind of have to churn through. So some people just throw out orchestration along with containers just just because that's what they heard in 2018, and that's what they think is still the case. Actually, Datadog did an excellent survey. They uh, went through the top 10 containerized applications. Yeah. Now it's a little bit dated. I think it's from 2018, but even back then, seven out of the top 10 containerized apps required persistent storage. So yeah. it's, a, it's definitely a, a myth. Oh, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. 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 I mean, I would go so far as to say that um, storage is the persistence of containers. Hmm. Uh, am, I, am I off base there? John? I think you have it, right? Because the container should be able to crash, move, change IPs, the storage stays the same, right? I mean, there's obviously there's manifests and there's stuff that's in etcd that, that kind of tracks how, what, you know, parameters are. That needs to be talked about too, but for the applicate for a database, MySQL database is a very common use case is, um, it can die, it can get restarted somewhere else, the data has to follow it. Right. And, you know, that's what we do, but 
you know, answering that question is something that a lot of people are still looking at, even though, yes, we've been do I've been doing this for two and a half years now talking about it. So. So given that it feels like uh, containers and microservices is being driven by the developer because it has advantages for them. Does this panel feel like storage is kind of the lagging indicator because they're uncertain about, uh, you know, a non-precedent environment to them is anathema? So there is a project called a CSI project, a container storage interface. And that's essentially a, um, I guess it's, it's a uh, cross the board, a common agreed um, API mechanism for servicing storage within Kubernetes. And I think anybody who's involved in the Kubernetes space, no matter what company you're working for, there will be some CSI um, initiative in that, in that company. So, um, so there is this specification that, you know, it's been driven by the community. Everybody is adhering to it. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, storage is the, the laggard here. Uh, in some ways, I think it's very much to the, the forefront of what's happening in the Kubernetes space. And uh, I know that, you know, John and the guys at Pure have their CSI driver. We have one at VMware as well. And, um, you know, it's we're continuing to, to work towards the, that API specification. I guess I should clarify, I didn't necessarily mean storage technology, but actual storage administrators, the ones who are going to be called to the carpet if data is lost. Are they the ones who are like, eh, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this whole ephemeral infrastructure? I see them not embracing it. So I'm not, you know, storage admins are, are people I talk to all day. So I think they're great people. <laughs> but the, the, um, I think that where you see it is, it is a loss of control, right? So we, we built an orchestrator and I don't think there's so much concern like, hey, you're gonna lose the data. They know that we're gonna protect the data. We're not, it, our arrays are very highly available. We're not gonna lose the data. What they're concerned about is a developer getting as much storage as he wants. And they're very worried about that. So I, I can explain all the cool stuff we do and how I make it, you know, one line to install, super easy. And they go, well, how do I stop them from using 10 petabytes on your array? Right? So it's not so much data protection, it's loss of control over resources. Yeah, and so they wanna know where the guardrails are and Kubernetes is really good. So I, I tell them every time, Kubernetes has a quota system for memory, CPU, network and storage and it works very well and it will stop your, your if you're concerned the developers are going to you know, provision 10 petabytes, it, it is, it'll stop them from doing that, yes. And it, it's very easy to implement and it'll work across all the storage vendors, right? So it's not just pure, right? It works across everyone. So, so when you see, when you talk to um, storage administrators about like um, storage classes and PVs, do they break out into a cold sweat when they say they can auto provision? And uh, oh yeah, you can, you can just ask for it and the, and the claim responds and you're good to go. Exactly, and as fast as you can go. So we have a customer, this is a funny story. They do 340,000 actions an hour with with our with PSO. So like those API calls and that's like creates, destroys, but you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But that, I mean, and they're an outlier. Like they're very, very much like everyone else's average is like 4,000. They're crazy amount higher than everyone else. And when you mention that to a, like an enterprise storage admin and they, yeah, they break out and sweat and they're like, oh my gosh, this is something I can't control, right? Can I yeah. put it on its own array, right? Which 
our salespeople love because if someone buys two arrays, that's better than one. So, but you know, I'm trying to help them be efficient and what's best for them. So it, there's ways to get around that and block block people from doing it. Yeah. It, it sort of comes back to one of the initial points we made is, you know, the gap between the actual Kubernetes clusters and what's, what are the developers doing at the Kubernetes layer and how we can track and monitor and manage that at the infrastructure layer. So that's, um, you know, it's something that we're trying to, to bridge at VMware. Um, one of the things we do have is a feature called cloud native storage. And that's basically bubbling up how Kubernetes developers are consuming vSphere storage and just displaying that in the, the vSphere client for a vSphere administrator. So things like what PVs map to which VMDKs, storage classes mapping to data stores, um, just capacity usage and all that kind of stuff. But I, I do agree with John. I think the, uh, what, you know, breaks them out in a cold sweat or, or vSphere administrators anyway, is how do we uh, put guardrails around preventing developers going nuts on the storage? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say the second follow-up question after that is how do I log it? How do I monitor it? How do I watch how, what every, everything that's happening into it? How do I know what the developers are doing? Um, you know, how, how do I keep the governance and make, make sure that my, you know, all of, all of the, all of the guardrails governance and monitoring are all taken care of. It's like, you know, people appear, uh, look at, uh, you know, Kubernetes and containerized infrastructure and, and as a service, and they see it as basically an all you can eat buffet. And that just gives everybody a cold sweat, especially if you're the, uh, you know, the, the chef who has to keep, uh, all those items on the buffet you know I, I think that uh you know that's sort of a perennial challenge and it's always been a challenge for storage admins especially because um there's always just been this insatiable appetite for storage um you know people chewing up more and more and more and to go to a storage admin and say yeah this will let people you know eat all they want um that's a pretty threatening uh pretty threatening statement right there so in the end though, I think that we need to kind of get back to it and think about the, uh, the core premise here. So you know, the, the, the challenge uh, here that we laid out at the beginning uh, and the premise that we laid out at the beginning was that orchestration was why enterprises weren't adopting containers and why they haven't adopted containers and what they're looking at in order to adopt containers. And now I'd like to go around the horn here and see um, what do you think? Is this right or is this wrong? Is this premise proven or is it disproven? And uh, you know, I, I'll start with uh, with John, and we'll go backwards from the way we started. Uh, so, what do you think? Is, is orchestration the reason people haven't adopted containers? I really don't think so. I think that there are a lot of orchestration options out there that can make their life easier. From from what VMware does, the you know, from the storage side, selfishly, right, is, you know, CSI being able to uh, enable, you know, Pure and VMware to work together on those things. That's, that's, I mean, all that's, all that's there. It's, I, I mean, I'm going to stand, I'm going to stay with that getting the technology in people's hands is what, what's preventing it right now. Like getting the, getting the experience to be comfortable doing that for their enterprise applications, I think is what is the, the stopper at this point in time. My perspective is that it's not orchestration per se, it's com overall complexity and orchestration is a considerable part of that complexity when you start to dig into Kubernetes and then all the other things around it, like we mentioned service meshes and security and, and storage. Um, that may be what's holding people back. Um, I think the fact that 
folks like VMware, which have strong ties to the infrastructure community coming along and saying, we've got this project, we've got this product Tanzu that's going to let you operate containers now in the same way that you've done VMs should help drive the market forward, meaning that it's not just this crazy open source thing that your developers are going on about when you bring it to infrastructure folks with a in a nice package and tell them, yes, you can have the controls and guardrails, that'll help. Still though, it's it's uh, incredibly complex and I think it's the complexity that's keeping people away to the, at this point. Yeah, certainly there is a lot of complexity. It's um, taken me quite some time to just get I believe is a basic familiarity with Kubernetes. Um, on the orchestration front, I agree that in the past it was complicated uh, to stand things up, just like I mentioned in the introduction, but there are a number of projects. I think it's been identified and recognized by the Kubernetes community that it is complicated to just get stood up. Um, and I think things like the cluster API, which we're leveraging um, quite considerably in Tanzu, uh, they're going to help for sure. I would say that there is still quite a bit of complexity, but I think we will see it get uh, easier going forward. Um, I think I think that the complexity of orchestration is one of the breaks that's causing people to not fully adopt it. If you are a brand new company today and you have a greenfield environment, then you are 100% going to use containers and when the application gets big enough, you're going to start orchestrating it. Um, if you are a large organization that has mainframes and and ten-year-old applications, you're gonna you're gonna walk into it a little bit slower. You're you're going to be you're gonna step more gently, especially if you're taking care of financial data. So so the orchestration layer isn't inhibiting people from getting into it, getting into containers, but it it definitely the the added layers of complexity definitely will cause people to pause. And I would say that uh, the uh, I think the premise is uh, is disproven. Um, I feel like orchestration is not the the the, the roadblock, um, mainly because so many companies are working so quickly to integrate and to to, to create containerized Kubernetesized inter interfaces. Um, you know, my first thought when I saw the announcement, for example, of Tanzu at uh, VMworld was, you know, not oh my gosh, you know how interesting this is from a technical perspective. It was just simply, yes, thank you. you know, Finally. Things need this. <laughs> Let's move forward now. You know what I mean? Um, I felt like this is, um, that was really a necessary step. And um, for that reason, uh, you know, I do feel that, uh, that, you know, container adoption is going to be much more rapid. And uh, now that there's more support among you know, storage providers among, you know, VMware and um, applications and so on. Um, I really feel like ed enterprise adoptions is simply waiting on the applications. So thank you very much, uh, everyone, for joining us for this podcast. It's been a lot of fun. It's nice to see you all. And uh, to the audience, thank you for listening to the On-Premise IT Roundtable. If you enjoyed this discussion, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes, since that really helps our visibility. And please share this show with your friends. This podcast is brought to you by gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage across the enterprise. For show notes and more, go to gestaltit.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.